And today we're going to be considering the book of Haggai. I want to just begin by asking a very simple question, and that is, how should we live as Christians in the light of grace? How should we live in light of the gospel? how How do we balance the fact that our salvation is based upon the complete work of Christ, the one-way love of God meeting us in our brokenness and our sinfulness uh, through, through Jesus and His atoning work on the cross? How, how do we reconcile that we are saved by faith through grace alone and not by works? Uh, and yet, we're going to deal with a book that is definitely one that is calling us to a selfless service uh, and obedience a partnering, if you will, a covenant partnering uh, with the creator of the universe. And what I just want to begin by saying is that salvation is a gift of grace, but what we need to learn to do as a community is to work out that salvation, to work from a posture of the reception of grace, and how does it play out as we actually go through our daily lives as followers of Christ, living life with Him, empowered by His Spirit. I want to just begin with a story uh, that really has become an analogy for my life every time I try to keep myself at the center of my existence. Every time I try to selfishly achieve my dreams and my hopes. And, and this story kind of encapsulates my experience of putting myself at the center. When I was in sixth grade, my mom had uh, moved myself and my brothers uh, over to eastern Washington so she could marry her high school sweetheart. We moved from Longview, Kelso, to this really small rural farming town called Finley. Uh, and being a kid whose primary passions in life was at that time breakdancing and singing, uh, I, I, I was not in for a, for a pleasant ride in Finley, to say the least. And I tried to acclimate to the new rural setting, giving myself to the activities of other country boys in hopes of fitting in, like riding horses. And we had a horse, my stepdad had a horse, uh, a half Arabian, half quarter horse that I rode every day uh, for almost a year until I had a significant riding accident. And it included the following. Number one, riding bareback down a gravel road with my, one of my first girlfriends ever, Nikki. I never kissed her, but she did, I think, punch me in the stomach once. <laughs> On a retired racehorse named April... And at my request, number two, I asked Nikki to have April run as fast as she could so that I could see what a racehorse felt like riding bareback behind my girlfriend, which is always a wise decision. And I felt like, just for at least 30 seconds, like the man from Snowy River. But then April refusing to stop, creating a terror-inducing experience, Uh, By taking what felt like a 90-degree turn at 40 miles an hour, number three, Nikki and I flying, which was my fault. She would not have fallen had I not been on the back. She actually rolled up into a tight little ball like a good rider does with just a few bruises to show for the accident. Me, I went into a full Christ pose, landing on the back of my head on a gravel road, 
ending in me covered in blood and Nikki screaming, you're losing too much blood, you're going to die. <laughs> Number four, me seeing the blood, woozy from the impact, then beginning to sob, having this romantic urge, I hugged Nikki, covering her in blood, then sobbing more hysterically, thinking this was the end, then re- realizing at 12 I wasn't ready to die. Number five, waving down a truck, looking like an attempted murder victim, head wounds bleed intensely, where a kind cowboy with a calm face, and in my memory the voice of Sam Elliott, said in a strangely inoffensive and soothing way, try not to get blood on my seat, son. (laughs) Number six, being rushed to the hospital, having the back of my head shaved, and receiving four stitches for for what was only a half-inch wound, and sent home with a raging headache and nausea from the concussion, creating a serious fear of horses and a concise close to my excursions on horseback. And number seven, going back to school on Monday with a giant naked purple goose egg on the back of my head and becoming once again the brunt of everyone's joke. This is the analogy that I would like to use of me attempting to satisfy my own dreams and keep myself on the throne of my heart. It also is just a really good story that would draw you in quickly. Uh, but I think that the story and the analogy is not that far off. Uh, seeking, the, Listen to this passage in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, because this really speaks to, to the temptation uh, and the, the, the deep-founded problem of existence, which is constantly us playing God us putting the wrong things upon the thrones of our hearts, the religious impulse being played out horizontally rather than vertically. Paul says in Galatians, he says, for now, am I, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what we think of when we read that verse is we think that it's about, it's about someone who's deeply concerned with what others think of them. And there, there is a component of that when we are self-centered. We obviously become extremely self-conscious about others' opinions. But to be seeking the approval of man is really just to be seeking the approval of oneself. It's self-seeking no matter how you dice it. It's still attempting to control our own situation, but to control our lives is an impossibility. And life, when we do this, becomes an endless and exhausting game of shoots and ladders. We climb, we slide, like Sisyphus, only to start all over again. With one key difference, eventually it'll kill us. And it would be amusing if it wasn't so tragic that much of the appeal to climbing is the exhaustion it produces because we all know that the goal never satisfies. Haggai is about realigning priorities, about seeking the kingdom of God and His presence first. It's about moving from selfish ambition to surrender, and it's about walking by faith in the power of the Spirit. It's what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, looking at this first step of what it means to live in the light of grace, we need to think about this as we have been born again, about what it means to realign our priorities. Now, the book of Haggai uh, is, is a fascinating book because in 586 B.C., the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took most of the Jews into exile. 
And about 50 years later, Cyrus the Persian took Babylon and brought the Babylonian Empire to an end. And the next year, he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. So chapter 1 begins with these words, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the first wave of exiles had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, and now it's 20 years later, and the temple still lays in ruin. Instead of rebuilding God's house, the people were pouring their energies and monies into renovating their own houses, taking care of their own lives, keeping their self-interest as the center of their existence. And this is what the prophet Haggai has to say as God speaks through him. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while while this house, the Lord's house, the temple, lies in ruins? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Uh, That's another, another way of saying take stock of your life. Take a look at how you're living. And look what what it says. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, isn't that a powerful statement that seems to speak to this insatiable appetite that we have as modern people for consuming things isn't it a matter how people can have so much and still not feel like they have enough isn't it interesting that how it doesn't matter what the newest technology is that we buy there's always a better one a year later we never seem to be able to get to where we want to go this is the the dilemma of human existence but there is something more powerful happening here and that is that God's own chosen people he has graciously returned them to their homeland he has called them to build rebuild the temple and I just want you to keep in mind this isn't about them going to work for God this is about God wanting to have a place where he could dwell where his presence could be with his people it was about about the children of Israel coming back into a rightful covenant relationship with their maker But instead, fear had set in. And a fear, once once scarcity, that spirit of scarcity sets in, then it becomes about protecting what is mine. Doing what is best for me and for my family. And this happens all the time. This isn't just like something that happened thousands of years ago. This is something that happens in the church today. We often create these defense mechanisms where we retract from God's community, from God's people. Uh, This is a... This is a common theme I've been hearing among many younger Christians today of a growing uh, uh, disenchantment with church. Oh, we love Jesus, but we don't like the church. That's bogus. Because Jesus himself established the church as the primary means by which he would fulfill his kingdom purposes on earth until he returns. That the church itself is the bride of Christ. So we're like, we like Jesus, but we hate his bride. Well, I can promise you that you, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are part of that obnoxious bride that you dislike. You're half the reason you don't like church, okay? 
Because whatever obnoxiousness you think is all around you in the community, I promise it is alive and well in your own heart just as it is in mine. Which is why if the church is going to function like the church, if it's going to move away from this, from this attempts to mimic or ape society and all of its self-help garbage that doesn't help anyone, it just continues to feed into the navel-gazing that leads us into many excursions like my horseback riding experience where we think we're the man from Snowy River only to find ourselves on the back of our heads because this is the lie that our world is telling us every day. You can be anything you want to be. The world is about you. You are the center of your own universe. Well, the children of Israel in fear had come into this kind of scarcity mentality. They have hunkered down. And instead of realigning themselves with the heart of Yahweh, they instead put all of their emphasis and their hope in what they can do with their own hands. They are trying to complete in the flesh. If I was to borrow New Testament language, what only God can do in the Spirit. And so God says, you have sown much and harvested little. God has intervened. He is actually making their prosperity not go very far. He's actually actually pushing in. And is it because God's a cosmic killjoy who wants to take away our stuff? No, it's because God cares too deeply. He is not content to live without His children. The good Father disciplines those whom He loves. And the Father's concern is and knows what is best for them. And what's best for them is right relationship with Him. So they lived in a perpetual frustration and discontentment because nothing they achieved for themselves was satisfying. That sounds weird. That doesn't sound like anything that we would have any understanding of today. I mean, the lesson is clear. If we devote ourselves to a selfish existence and neglect so great a salvation, if we spend our time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend ourselves on the kingdom of God, listening to the false prophets of self-realization and their relentless call to believe in yourself. Just do it. Your best life now, ad nauseum, it will give way to what we see all around us, which is a rising tide of exhaustion, anxiety, loneliness, helplessness, self-medication, and even suicide, which is on the increase right now. The vacuous promises that come to us from the pulpits, bookstores, social media, internet, entertainment, etc., are impotent in their ability to produce what they promise. This is the issue of the age in which we live. The very things that many people in the pews are experiencing are the very things that we're supposed to be helping the world. We are to be offering to the world a a way where they can have peace in the midst of their circumstances. And yet, that is often what the church is not offering because the church is often filled with people that are more concerned about their agenda than they are about God's. And I know that to be true often in my own life. It's no surprising that it leads to frustration. We need to realign our priorities, but we need to do that by seeking first his kingdom. Look what he goes on to say. Uh, He says in verses 7 and 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Take stock of your life. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. I think this, what a beautiful picture is, is, is what, what we're doing with our, with our time, with our money, with our relationships, uh, with our giftings. Are those things bringing glory to God? And what brings glory to God? That's a, that's a big question. I think that, like, what is it that actually glorifies God? Is it by you living a morally upright life? Or does what bring glory to God is your daily, your daily surrender to His grace 
by which you become a conduit of faith for his spirit to make Jesus known through your life. A humility, an honesty, a transparency, a vulnerability that is attractive to the world. That's what the world is looking for. Why do you think Brene Brown is so popular right now? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not convinced it's because she's the greatest prose writer of all time. I think it's because she's touched a nerve in the, in the whole world of how desperately in the age of masks how we really need real vulnerability, real transparency. And he says, "Go that I may be glorified. Says the Lord, you looked for much and behold it came to little. And when you brought it home, I love this, I blew it away. <laughs> Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. You're not satisfied with your home because what will make your home complete is your right relationship with me. You have left my place in ruins. You have left my witness in ruins. You have left my mission in ruins while you continue to try to fulfill your dreams and your purposes and all you're finding is coming up short and feeling frustrated. As Eugene Peterson translates verse 9, you have had great ambitions for yourselves. And what God is putting the finger on, on the nerve of the hearts of the children of Israel, is that they have divided hearts and they have displaced affections. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. How do we apply this? Because one of the things that we actually just write off Haggai because it's about literally the very practical need to rebuild an actual temple. Because it's pre-gospel. And yes, it's true that Paul would stand uh, in the book of Acts and say, God does not dwell in a house made with human hands. And we'll, we'll say that the, the people are the church and that buildings don't matter. But what I love about Haggai is it's extremely practical. It's a, it's a practical outworking of how do we experience God's presence in a material world in which we are practical people that need to actually exercise our very human existence toward a spiritual reality, a spiritual truth. I, think, I love it because this book really uh, eradicates the lines between sacred and secular. And he, I, I mean, he's, he's being practical. He's like, literally, I want you to go buy the materials necessary and start building. I want you to rebuild my temple. But what's the purpose? I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. you what he's concerned about, what's breaking his heart, is that his children don't want to be with him. They've allowed fear of man to push them into a place of, of, of being cloistered from the world. Uh, and and this, is, this is deeply problematic. Now here's the thing that's really powerful about this is it, it raises questions for us about how we utilize our own resources, how we, how we spend money. And listen, I've seen Haggai used really inappropriately. They're like, see, here's the principle. If you don't give just generously to God financially. Uh, he's going to take what you do have away from you. Uh, in fact, I am positive that um, Darcy's little granny, uh, she used to always tell Darcy and I stories about how her and her papa came to the, the realization of, of, of the power of giving the tithe and the miracles that would happen when they tithe when they didn't have it. And I agree, actually, with, with those principles. I, I do believe that we worship and serve a God who is a generous God and a God who is wanting us to live sacrificially and that sacrificial living is always blessed. I just think that it's unfortunate that Haggai is often used as a tool of church 
pastors to manipulate their congregation to give more money. I think the real thing that's at stake is what is it, what kingdom is it that you're seeking? What have you put at the center? Or is, is it clear from the priorities of your life uh, that, that Jesus is the central passion? Having received grace, having received the one-way love of God, what, is the, what is, should the heart response be to a God who has done everything for us? It should be this total surrender that says, Lord, everything I am, everything I have, everything belongs to you. Seeking first his kingdom. Because the question, is it wrong to have a beautiful home? Darcy and I, we love our little Victorian house. It's small, but we love it. It's beautiful. And we do the best we can with the limited resources that we have to make it as beautiful and as cozy as possible. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. But the question is, is when that thing becomes more important than our relationship with Christ, it's problematic. And here's the thing that Augustine hit on again and again so powerfully in his book Confessions, where he hits on the displaced affections of the human heart. Because we often think of, of giving our lives to things that are bad and that's in, instead of giving it to God. No, the real issues, the really dangerous things are the things that are gifts from God that we turn into God. So that can be your children, that can be your job, that can be your home, that can be your leisure time, that can be your entertainment. It's whatever it is that you spend the most time thinking about. What is it that you love the most? You are what you love, as, as uh, Smith brilliantly wrote in, that, in his book on worship. We are what we love. And I think that this is, this is what Haggai is getting at. He's challenging the heart affections. What is it that is most important to you? I love what it says in Matthew chapter uh, 6, verses 19 through 21. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I, had a really, I have a really dear friend who is an extremely successful finance man in Detroit who's made millions and millions of dollars. And I asked him once, he's just extremely generous and gives away most of his income. And I said, I go, how are you able to give away so much money? I said, how do you, how do you keep from this thing becoming a controlling force in your life? And he said, he goes, giving it away is the only safe course of action. He's like, the only thing that keeps it from being my God is by continually giving it away. He goes, because what I want to do in the flesh versus what I'm willing to do in the spirit are very different. What I want to do is keep stockpiling it. He's like, what is, how much is enough? Just one more dollar, right? Isn't that the saying? But no, he's like, no, that what, what brings me joy is when I actually give in a way that it hurts. When I give sacrificially. Not even just when I give, I give, I give the 10% so I can keep the millions but no, when I actually give in a way that it actually affects things, that's when there is joy. And this is where I believe the seeking first his kingdom principle really plays out. And for some of you, maybe God is convicting you and challenging you because I think the natural tendency that we have as Christians is that we compartmentalize our Christian life. So we have areas that are surrendered to Christ. We serve faithfully. We do this faithfully, but we don't tithe. 
We don't give any, we don't give financially to the church. That's not an area. We're like, he can have my time, my energy. I'll be in a community group. I'll, I'll go on Sunday. He'll have my attendance. He'll have my Bible study. He'll have my prayer, but I'm not going to give. For others of you, you give because that's the way that you feel relieved from your duty to anything else. And I think that this is the question. The question is, how are you creating in your life selective sanctification? Because everything is grace. God does not need your works, but your neighbor does. And so what we need to understand is as a people, what, what, God, what, what Haggai is calling the children of Israel to as God speaks through him is to seek first the kingdom of God, to put him as the center and allow everything else to flow from that. And this is the question that I would have for you. Is that a picture of your life? And I, I've had these moments in my own Christian life where I've always described faith, like really radical faith is, is truly walking up to a precipice. And I, I, I think if, you've, if any of you have walked with Jesus, you know this feeling where you just, you know, if you were to truly be all in, that it would be amazing. But there's a real terror there's real possibility of loss. There's always real consequences. I mean, did any of the, of the disciples of Jesus that followed him, did any of their lives go well? Is it, does it look like anything like the prosperity gospel that is so prominent in American churches and around the world today? It doesn't look like anything like that. Peter's like, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Good, follow me. What about him? Don't worry about him. Someday you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna die just like me, but upside down. Oh, good. Yay. Sign me up. No, that's not what we're signing up for. And, th- and there is that, that terror of like, if I give everything to Jesus, what will happen? Will I lose friends? Will I, could I lose my job? Could I, what, what will happen if I step up to that precipice? And, and, and the answer is, is that, yes, maybe. But what we get out of that is the very thing that the thing that is often missing in our experience more than anything else, which is the actual experience of God's presence in our lives, because the experience of God's presence in our lives is not found through us taking on more navel-gazing in the, in the church. You're not going to find Jesus more by getting alone with him and avoiding the world. He's not impressed if you go up on the mountain if you never come down and get your hands and feet dirty amongst real people. I think that this is one of the great issues in the church is that we're hungry for an experience with God when the experience of God comes from loving God and loving neighbor, which is the outcome of grace. When we actually say, Lord, I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to do something crazy. This is exactly how Darcy and I were. When, we, when Dora Hope first began, I was working at a church. I resigned from the church. I did not have support from the church to plant Door of Hope. What I had was five-month severance. And that five months severance, I said, Darcy, we have five months. I did everything as a church planter that all church planters that I've met since then, I've never met a single one that did it that way. All of them gone through, they go through, you know, intensives, like figuring out where their giftings are. They raise money from various churches and they have people that are supporting them as missionaries so they can go in and kind of soft launch and they start with a couple community groups. I'm like, we don't have time for any of that. Literally, we need to start church next week. It was just me painting a church. Uh, and you know what was crazy is we were scared, but there was so much peace, so much joy in that time. And that time wasn't because we were doing anything great. The only thing we were doing that I think was great is just completely yielded and we're saying, Lord, we don't know where this is going. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to support my family. I'm probably going to go back to painting houses. But we feel so confident that you're calling us to this thing 
that we're going to step out and see what happens. And that's how the church began. Was that, and it was in that time that the experience of Jesus' presence in my life was felt the most intensely. And I, and I found that, that like the children of Israel in the story of Haggai, that as the church grew and, and by the you know, status in, in the world became successful, people came. Uh, that that the, the experience of Christ diminished as I became fearful of losing what had been built. And then we enter into, as a church, that the very dangerous ground of that scarcity mindset. It's not about going out into the world and risking everything for the kingdom and for the gospel to see as many people saved as, as possible, to just turn things upside down. In the early days, we would, we would change trajectories. We'd turn, I'm like, we're preaching outside next week. We're going to close down church on Sunday. We're going to be outside. We're going we're to do river baptisms. We're going to get up for 90 days in a row and, and study the entire New Testament at 6 a.m. I mean, just all these like over-the-top things because we had nothing to lose and everything to gain. But the moment we had much, we became afraid of losing any. And I think that this has been a really cool year where God has pushed us even coming back into this building and seeing once again that that hunger to step out onto the precipice to seek his kingdom first and to do like if we're not going to reach the city I don't even want to be your pastor like if we're not going to be serious about reaching the lost if we're going to sit in here in our comfortable seats concerned about our lives and how we can check off on the box that I fulfilled my spiritual duty for the week and then just continue to walk by the lost man the lost woman the lost boy the lost girl without even a blink of an eye as people are literally perishing, experiencing hell on the way to hell, and we have literally the answer to their lives, and we keep it to ourselves because we're so wrapped up and anxious just like them because we're not experiencing grace because we're not walking by faith. And I believe that seeking first his kingdom transforms that. It changes everything. Moving from selfish ambition to surrender is really the next thing that we need to understand. We can go to the next slide, please. In Haggai 1, verse 12, he says, Then Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen, look what happens. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Remember what I said last week about the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is the stock term for awe and wonder. God's presence is experienced, and it creates a sacramental caste by which the distinctions between the sacred and the secular become diminished. We begin to see the world as God's world, and we begin to see the people as a people that God has come to seek and to save. And that, and, and that happens when we actually begin to work out our salvation. We're not working for salvation. We are working from this incredible one-way, one-way love of God. It has infused our hearts by the power of the Spirit. We move from selfish ambition to surrender. With the people's hearts fully, now fully attentive to God, Haggai shifted the direction of their work from selfish ambition to selfless abandon, from focusing on temporal needs to focusing on eternal needs. And I think that that's one of the deep needs within the church today is a reorientation of the lens by which we look at the world through. That, that our experience and our hunger for God is actually experienced when we actually begin to bring our King into the world as the witnesses that we are called to be. And you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses to the end of the world. But I think that this is one of the issues that we have. I, I've said this before that 
We receive each day the grace that is necessary for the day. But I think often, once again, that scarcity mentality thinks that we can actually hold on to the faith that we had yesterday or the, faith, or the grace that we experienced yesterday. We cannot live on yesterday's fumes. We need a fresh move of God every moment of every day. We need to continually remember that the prodigal spirit is a reality in our lives where we will naturally drift again and again from the heart of the Father, which is why a real Christian life is a life that continually returns to the Father in surrender, moving from selfish ambition to surrender. I believe that the one thing that we have the freedom to do as Christians is submit. And actually, when we discover as Christians we become free, we realize that we have the freedom to make absolute messes of our lives or we have the freedom to run into the heart of the Father, our obedience to the voice of God. What does God want from us? What is our obedience today? What does the work of God look like in the Christian's life today? Jesus was asked, what must we do to do the work of God? He said, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Selfish ambition to surrender just simply means I, that Jesus is Lord is the actual movement in three words. Jesus is Lord means I'm no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord means that He is Lord of every component. I am a bondservant, says Paul, of Jesus Christ, which means He's a willing slave, which means that everything He is, everything He has belongs to Christ. The question that I would have for you today is are you willing to take the radical step of faith that says the most dangerous prayer that you can actually ever pray, and that is, Lord, do whatever it takes to make me a man or woman after your heart. Blow away anything in my life that is hiding you from me. Darcy and I were having a conversation yesterday and it was, it was a really powerful time where we just, I just actually had to write down in my morning devotions things that I want God to blow away in my life that I think are keeping me back from the full, the full radical realities of what he wants to accomplish in and through this community, in and through our lives. And I think all of us can ask those questions. As I'm asking myself honest questions, what rooms in, uh, in, in my heart have I still kept from God? Because we think if we give him access to 75% of our house, we're, you know, we've done good. But he wants access to every nook and cranny of our home. He wants to set it up as his home. And I think that this is a powerful picture of what it means to move from selfish ambition to really a holy ambition, an ambition to see Jesus exalted in everything. Which brings me finally to what it means to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. Because what happens in Haggai is really beautiful. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 2-5, through five, it says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Notice that. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Essentially, what he is saying is here is he says, work because I am at work in you. Paul actually remixes Haggai in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In both the apostle and the prophet, it's the presence of God that literally energizes and inspires the believer to become that covenant partner. 
that we don't we that we we experience the the gift. I always I always like to say that salvation uh, grace comes to us as a gift, and gift has two two definitions. The one definition is it's something that is given freely and must be received freely. And this is what happens when we say yes to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. When we, when we respond to the offer of salvation, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever says that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. You're not doing anything for that. It's like the thief on the cross who says, Lord, remember me today in paradise. His hands were a bit tied up. He wasn't able to actually do anything for it. All he did was cast his dependence upon the one whom he thought had the key to bringing him into something better than what he was experiencing in the moment. That is the power of salvation by faith alone and grace alone. And I think that this is, this is the, the, the second definition, though, of a gift, is a gift is also a talent that one is born with. And when we become born again, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit actually begins to, to it, we're told that we, are, we were given a new heart. And in, in that, we now have the ability, the love of God is poured out in our hearts. We know that we are loved. We're given love to love God with and love, love that is not natural to our natural disposition. But it's a supernatural love that comes into our lives by the Spirit that we now have to give to the world. And it must be given away or it goes bad. <laughs> or we stop, we lose sight of it. I don't know what happens. It's not like I think grace can spoil but there is something about, about keeping it in and not releasing it. What Jesus says, what I speak to you in private, yell from the rooftop. I think, that, I think it's even what I give to you, release it. Because there's more for you to have tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't even worry about your failures of yesterday. Today, what will you receive from God and how will you enter into as a, as a conduit of His grace, that, that one-way love of God that has actually birthed in you the Holy Spirit who wants to actually now utilize you as a conduit to point others to King Jesus. How will you become that conduit? Because that's what it means when He says, work for I am, I am with you. It is work because I am at work in you. And what we need to understand is what is being told to the children of Israel when he says, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in you. Fear not. In other words, we are building more than we see. You know, I've been receiving, uh, just, just recently I noticed that we've just seen this huge uptick in emails from people around the U.S. and even from different places in the world for both Deeper Well and for Door of Hope people that have just come across our church, the teachings online, uh, the most, uh, obviously the most humbling is, is, and probably several of you are here today, is, is, oh, I'm here because I found the Bible Project, and the Bible Project, and then that's where Tim Mack, and I thought I was coming to hear Tim Mackey preach, and it was you. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I never think about the fact that this church has any reach other than what's in front of me. Uh, I'm, I'm a definitely an out-of-sight, out-of-mind personality. It's probably good to not think about our reach, overthink that. But, I, but it's good to be reminded that we are building more than we see when we're faithful to the gospel. That we have no idea the thousands of people that have come through the doors of Door of Hope over the last 10 years. And being a young church, that also means that it can be a very migratory church where people come to college, come here and work for a while, then move away because it got expensive or just get, go, go on to something else. And, and, but 
we have no idea the reach or the, the, the ways that you who've served as community group leaders or in different ways where God has utilized you in this community to actually speak power and truth, prophetically speak over people's lives that has actually changed the trajectory, the course of their existence. But we can do that so much more. When are we going to be a church that goes out and we really begin to, to, to say to the world, come and see. We need that peace. We need to know that God is with us, working in us and through us. And He is saying to us the same thing He said to the children of Israel. Be strong. Work for I am with you. My Spirit remains not just in your midst. My Spirit remains in you. So yield to that Spirit. This is what it means to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit can't have power if you're still maintaining control. And so I go back to the initial story of me on horseback. That's what trying to hold on to control looks like. But a yieldedness to accept God's power in light of our weakness. To continue to walk vulnerably as a community before our King and before one another to live out that confessional faith, that radical confessional faith that says, I am a sinner who has been saved by grace, which makes me a saint. A people that continually invite others in to experience the real Jesus. Not not some pretense of putting yourself forward like you've got everything figured out, but humbly accepting that every day you need grace just as much as the lost person you're trying to share it with. That the cross puts us all on an even playing field. And that what God wants to build today, as he builds his church in the world, he does it by our faithful witness as we obey. An obedience that flows out of the gift that we have received. An obedience that flows out of love. For it is God's love that compels us to live differently. This is the message of Haggai. And I pray that in the light of grace, we would realign our priorities, we would seek first His kingdom, that we would move from selfish ambition to surrender, and that we would walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray.